And if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to that passage that Trent just read for us, Psalm 97. The Bible says that God's glory is on display in creation. Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky, the stars, and really by extension all of creation is saying something, is saying that he's there, that he's good, that he's glorious. Christians know this. Christians from time to time say this kind of thing themselves and to each other. Perhaps at a glorious sunset, we might say, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That God is showing his handiwork to us tonight. Perhaps at a starry night in the middle of nowhere where the stars are the brightest. Perhaps uh, at a still and quiet sunrise. And of course it is right and it is good for us to think on God and thank him when we see such magnificent beauty and creativity. But God's glory is also shown in the aspects of creation that are absolutely terrifying. His glory is not just revealed in what's beautiful, what's interesting, what's heartwarming, like sunsets and daisies and puppies and kittens and swaying wheat fields. The stars, we say, they twinkle, but they only twinkle because they're so very far away. Up close, they are nuclear fireballs. So there's a dark side of creation. There's a dark side to creation. We might refer to natural disasters from time to time. We might call certain things cataclysmic events. As I thought about it this week, what I'm after, what I'm talking about today, may be bigger than just that or broader than natural disasters and cataclysmic events because we tend to think of those as only the really bad things. Things that make the headlines, that's a natural disaster or a cataclysmic event. Well, along with natural disasters in the headlines are all kinds of everyday, seemingly normal, and yet powerfully scary parts of creation. We could refer to these as upheavals. The word upheaval means a violent change, literally a flipping over. And God in his creation at times flips things over. Yes, earthquakes, that's literally a flipping over, right? It's a, it's a move of tectonic, tectonic plates below the surface that, that make the ground shake and houses and buildings fall at times. There are volcanoes, big upheavals of fiery lava bursting forth with the power far greater than a bunch of nuclear bombs. There are tsunamis, the effects of earthquakes below the sea. They travel at hundreds of miles an hour and they do untold damage once they hit the shores. Hurricanes, we've all seen satellite images of a storm the size of Texas spinning about and heading right for one of our coasts. Some of you have experienced that up close. Probably more of you have experienced a tornado. You've seen one, maybe you've, you grew up in Kansas or Texas and you had to go to the basement frequently to hide and hang on 
and hope it didn't hit your home. Well, you can also think of upheavals in terms of floods, right? I mean, maybe they're not as, at times, violent, but they can be just as destructive. Floods and droughts as well. Droughts lead to fires. Even snowstorms. There are snowstorms which bury a city. In our country, we get one to two big snowstorms a year that will put 50 inches on a town like Boston or Chicago and absolutely lock it up when they're used to snow. Hailstorms can turn your car into a golf ball. And even everyday thunderstorms, the kind that don't really hurt anyone but terrify your dogs and cats and kids. And if you're close enough... You as well. Well, this week we look to Psalm 97. And really I want to use Psalm 97, especially the first six verses, as a springboard to think more broadly, more whole Bible, about this thing of the dark side of creation. Because we tend to think of God's glory in creation as the nice stuff. We tend to just sort of grimace and not think about him when it's the bad stuff, the scary stuff, the dark side of creation. So how and why is there a dark side of creation? How and why is God in it and using it? How could he be? Well, we've been in a series in the book of Psalms for a while now. We've been calling the series, Pour Out Your Heart to Him. That's a phrase from Psalm 62. And really, so many of the Psalms relate to that thing of pouring out your heart to him in prayer or in praise or, or even in request when something's wrong. Some psalms, though, are to God's people, even to the whole world. It's a, an invocation or an invitation to come and to praise him, to pour out your heart to him for who he is and for what he's done. And Psalm 97 is one of those kind of psalms. And Psalm 97... God's presence and God's judgment are equated with storms and lightning and fire. This isn't the only place like this. In the Bible, all over, when God shows up in a special way, powerful and terrifying elements of nature accompany his unique and special presence. We're not sure why, but he seems particularly fond of revealing his presence in these elements of upheaval. Like at Mount Sinai, in the book of Exodus, where God was going to give the Ten Commandments to Moses. He's going to meet with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, it says Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. Earthquake-like. A shaking mountain at the presence of the Lord. In the next chapter of Exodus, it says, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, rightly so. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen to you. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. A God who shows up like that, a God 
who sounds like that, who quakes a mountain like that, that God we cannot hear or will die. Tell us what he says, Moses. Well, then, as the story goes along in the book of Exodus, remember the tabernacle was eventually built and set up, and God entered it. And as he entered it, the people knew that God entered it because a cloud and fire settled on the tabernacle. In Numbers, God led them through the wilderness, showing his presence in the day with a cloud and in the night with a pillar of fire. What in the world is a pillar of fire? A giant tube of fire in the sky? What is this? Oh, I don't know. It's miraculous, mysterious, wonderful, scary, all at the same time. But it's representing his presence. And Psalm 97 has those kind of events in mind. Look at verse 2 when it says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Almost the exact same phrase from what we saw from God meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai. Clouds and thick darkness representing his presence. And if we fast forward to the end of the book, the book of Revelation and the book of the Bible, we read the Apostle John telling us of what he saw of heaven. Revelation 4, 5, he sees Jesus on the throne. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So you've got Sinai, thunder, lightning, quaking, shaking. You've got the Psalms doing the same thing. You've got Revelation, the end of time, Jesus on his throne. What's it look like? Flashes of light, lightning, rumbling, and thunder. God reveals himself in these mighty pictures. How else should we think about the dark side of creation? Well, I want to tell you five things about that today. The first is creation is under a curse. Hence, there are upheavals in this world. There are earthquakes and and volcanoes, tornadoes, hurricanes. These things exist because this world is under a curse, and hence the world is is groaning. We saw that last week from Romans chapter 8, where Paul says the creation, because of sin, was subjected to futility. He says it's in bondage now. He says it's under corruption now. He says that the whole creation, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Something's going to change eventually. Eventually that child's going to be born. And we don't know how long that that childbirth process is going to take in God's plan. But we do know that right now the earth groans. Because of what Genesis 3 says, that Adam and Eve sinned, and hence now they die, and all their offspring die. And not just them, not just humanity, but the ground itself is cursed because of sin. And not just the ground, thorns and thistles and hard work in the soil, but, but what did Paul say in Romans 8? The whole creation is groaning. The whole creation is under a curse. And that's why there are things like volcanoes and earthquakes, hurricanes, and thunderstorms, even droughts. It's all part of this thing called the curse. It's like an old creaking ship, this earth. And it awaits docking in its final destination someday. This is no small curse. These are no small groanings. They are loud and they are painful. 
Who can forget the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, which took 220,000 lives and did uncalculable damage to a country that's still reeling from its effects? Just this week, a super typhoon off the coast of Japan had wind speeds of 170 miles an hour, far more than those of Katrina. We've seen all the countless videos and pictures of the havoc that Katrina wrought on New Orleans. Some of you went there to help out. You saw it firsthand. $100 billion of damage. It took 800 lives, which is actually far fewer deaths than some of the greatest storms in recorded history. 800 lives with Katrina, but by comparison, in 2008, a cyclone hit Burma and took out 138,000. Do you even remember a hurricane in Burma? A hurricane in Burma that took out 138 and 200, 138,200 more than what Katrina took out. The Indonesian tsunami, of course, we heard about that one. That made the news quite well in 2004, and it killed about a quarter of a million people. Most of us won't remember, maybe some of us never heard of a cyclone that hit Bangladesh in 1970 and killed 500,000. One storm taking out 500,000. In fact, of the ten deadliest storms in recorded history, six of them We're on Bangladesh. Go figure. Hmm. An earthquake in China in 1556 is said to have taken out 830,000. Simply from the shifting of tectonic plates. Something that seems so innocent, natural, inevitable. Takes out almost a million people. Creation is under a curse This world is groaning, hence there are these things called upheavals. There's an explanation for why these things exist. Because sin exists. Because this world is broken. But secondly, we need to say that God is still sovereign over creation. He's still sovereign, including the upheavals. He's sovereign over everything, not just the earth and the things in the earth and the operation of the earth. He's sovereign over kings and the decision of kings. He's sovereign over birds. Jesus said, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. He said, not one hair falls off your head apart from your father's will. The decisions you make, where you live, according to Acts 17, it's all according to his plan. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And hence, he is sovereign over creation. And the things in creation. This is our Father's world, we sing. Rightly so. Like King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4, he says that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or hold back his hand. And none can say to him, what have you done? He's not accountable to us. He doesn't owe you an explanation. We don't know why he does this or that. But he's sovereign. R.C. Sproul said, If there is one renegade molecule anywhere in creation, then God is not sovereign over molecules. 
and hence he's sovereign over the earth's upheavals. Now, when the Psalms speak of God riding on storms and using storms, we might miss what they're saying. What they were saying sometimes, many times, is that God is subduing the forces of chaos. That's what storms and the sea meant to people in Bible times of ancient Near East cultures. Storms and sea represented that thing which you couldn't predict, that thing which you couldn't control, the thing which took a lot of people out, the thing which would come up upon you and find, you'd find yourself helpless in. Well, God rides on those storms. He uses those storms. He's bigger than those storms. He's not a God of chaos. He's, he's sort of subduing the earth in an ultimate way. So he's sovereign over earth's upheavals, and he's using the dark side of creation for his purposes, mysteriously but wisely, good and sovereign. He's using upheavals for his own purposes. Sometimes we see exactly why he's doing it and what he's doing, like the ten plagues in Egypt. Almost each one of those is an upheaval as God judges Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Locusts and and flies and, and frogs and the sea turned to blood. God's sovereign over his creation. Trent recently preached from the book of Jonah. And we saw there storms and sea and a giant man-eating fish, all used by God, all central to his story, all orchestrating together for this, for this thing of Jonah's confrontation and the salvation of Ninevites. When Job's ten children died from some sort of natural disaster, Job said in chapter 1, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if you know the story of Job, you know that Satan was involved in this somehow. He had to get permission to God, from God to, to go after Job and to, to take out his livestock and his livelihood, his possessions, and even his kids. But God had to give permission, and God was in it. It says, The Lord has taken away. In the commentary, the next verse, after Job said, the Lord has taken away, in Job chapter 1, it says, in all this, Job didn't sin or accuse God wrongly. It was right for him to say, the Lord had taken away. It was right for him to say in the next chapter to his, to his wife, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive calamity? Now, we must not presume to know why God does this or that calamity, natural disaster, or upheaval. He didn't even explain it all to Job, even though he kind of gave Job an explanation. In fact, for four chapters, he explained something of his doings for Job, but he didn't explain it all. And he certainly doesn't tell us why that city and not that one, why that trailer park and not that one, why this house and not that one. Why these people and not those? What we can say is we, we don't know. And we can say that it's not because one city or one part of the country was more sinful. It may be judgment. We don't know. We don't even presume to guess, though. God's ways are mysterious. But one thing we can say about why God does some of these things is that he wants to show his power. He is a God 
who absolutely refuses to be domesticated, who absolutely refuses to be mistaken as one of us. Scripture's clear, it's even downright repetitive, that God intends to show his power in creation. Psalm 33 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, for he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood fast. Tremble before him, all the earth. That's why he made what he made. That's why he does what he does. Turn to the book of Job with me, to chapter 36. There's more about God's creation and his sovereignty over creation later on in the book of Job. It's actually all throughout the book of Job. At the beginning, the middle, towards the end, where God is shown to be supremely in charge and using the mighty things of creation for his mysterious purposes. In Job 36, Elihu is one of Job's friends, and he starts talking. Now, some of the friends, all the friends except Elihu, have given some bad advice, and they have had a wrong view of God and God's plan, and they've not been helpful to Job, and God later rebukes them. But Elihu, a different friend, is right, and he represents God, and God doesn't rebuke him later, so we know he's right. So look at Job 36, verse 29, where Elihu says this, Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark, to strike the place where it goes. Lightning with its crazy, crooked, jagged, unpredictable path, it's striking its mark. Are you kidding? It's crashing, declares his presence, Elihu says. The cattle also declare that he rises. Yeah, as they know what thunder and lightning are. And when they go inside, because it's coming, they declare he's at it again. We best take cover. Look at chapter 37, verse 2, where Elihu says to Job, Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he doesn't restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Verse 11, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance. They twist and bend in that crazy crooked path by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the inhabited world. Whether for correction... Or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. In other words, we don't know. We don't know why lightning struck right there. It could be judgment. It could be part of his care for the land and just the simple need to release electricity from that cloud. It could be love, as he points us to him, that he causes it to happen. But we should, like Elihu says to Job, hear this. Stop 
and consider the wondrous works of God. And in case you think, well, Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's just one guy's view, and Elihu in chapter 36 and chapter 37, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe they pinned too much on God. God says for himself the same thing. Chapter 38, verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? A way for the thunderbolt. Verse 34. God says to Job, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go, that they may say to you, Here we are. We're ready. Send us, hit the button, tell us where to go. Last week, I got pretty close to a lightning strike, closer than I think I've been before. I was here at the church, and we had one of those afternoon storms rolling in, and uh, I had a motorcycle here at the church, so I thought, I better get this home. Um, And so I was just ahead of the storm, moving west toward east, uh, heading to my house, and got just a little bit of sprinkling on me on the way there, and I pull in the garage put the kickstand down, and boom! And I saw lightning flash at the exact same time that I heard the noise. Maybe it hit the light post behind me. It felt super scary close. So I went in and changed my pants and (laughs) told my wife that I wasn't in the garage shooting a shotgun. Told everyone I'm okay, but I almost died. You should know that. I mean, it was scary. The ground shook. And that's just one little lightning strike. So you know, there are right now 2,000 thunderstorms on planet Earth. At any given moment, 2,000 thunderstorms are going on. About 1.4 billion flashes of lightning are worldwide each year. 1.4 assignments from God. Go right there, hit that mark. A bolt of lightning only lasts 30 microseconds. I don't even know what a microsecond is, but it sounds short. (laughs) Only 30 microseconds long because they travel at 224,000 miles per hour. One lightning bolt produces one trillion watts or a billion volts of energy. If only we could get cars that could harness that. A lightning bolt can be as hot as 54,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And that means nothing to us because that's off the charts. But this will help you. That's almost six times hotter than the surface of the sun. A lightning bolt. Lightning can strike a tree and literally make it explode because it instantly heats up the sap. The chunks of wood that shoot out from a tree that's been struck by lightning are like shrapnel and they can be deadly to people around them. God is intent to show his power and his constant intimate involvement in his creation that lightning goes where he says it goes. And if lightning, then storms, clouds, and everything else. Third, we should talk about this, that upheavals remind us, they should remind us of our frailty and his protection. It's implied, isn't it? It's obvious. These upheavals like thunderstorms or tornadoes or worse for hurricanes or earthquakes, 
They remind us of our smallness, that there are things that are seriously outside our control. There is nothing you can do besides hide or take cover and hope that the cover is stronger than the storm when a tornado comes. You can't decide to dig in, like really get a good firm footing, you know, really just kind of strengthen the quads up and hold your arms like this and tell the tornado that, you know, you're tougher. There's no fighting it. We're helpless in the face of such amazing power. But upheavals like these remind us of God's amazing provision, his amazing protection, and the amazing peace that's actually in this world. I mean, it's amazing how calm things are. Usually how peaceful, how normal, how regular, how predictable in some ways things are on this this glorious planet. And who knows how much God holds back. How many storms he's kept us from. How many things he's protected you from. Psalm 46 talks about this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, even if the earth gives way, like California breaks off into the sea. Even if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Tsunami. Even though its waters roar and foam. Even though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Volcanoes. Earthquakes. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. Even in the midst of the most horrific Category 5 hurricane. God is on his throne. God is near to his people. God will take care. So who knows how much chaos would overtake this world if God were not sustaining it. God's involvement in these sorts of things in creation might want you to to think, what if he wasn't involved? What, What if he wasn't actively doing these things? Well, what it would not mean is a global and steady calm. It wouldn't mean a lack of natural disasters if God were not intimately involved in his creation. It would mean utter chaos. It would mean global, universal breakdown. Colossians 1 says, In him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says, He upholds all things by the word of his powerful mouth. So it's a comforting thing that the powerful God who does this kind of stuff is our God. He's near. He cares. And he hears. He intervenes. He holds back. He protects. And yet it's a comforting and fearful thing at the same time. Remember that story in Luke 8 where the disciples are out at sea with Jesus. A storm comes upon them. They're certain they're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. So they wake up Jesus. It says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And they were afraid, the disciples. They marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? 
If you know anything about the Old Testament in God's use of, control of creation in Old Testament passages, there's no way of not seeing that this is attributing deity to Jesus. He commands winds and waves. He's the God of creation. He's in our boat. We woke him up. Winds and waves obey him. I don't. So they feared. They really feared all the more, didn't they? It's comforting, and yet it's a fearful thing to have the God who tells the sea to be still in your boat. The fourth thing we should talk about is that upheavals are windows into God's ways with his enemies. Little windows into how God works and, and works over his enemies at times. It's like these upheavals are symbolic of God's judgment, especially in the Psalms this is the case, where cataclysmic events are like a, a favorite analogy for God coming in judgment and intervening, rescuing his people and doling out judgment on their enemies. We saw this in Psalm 18. Would you turn back there real quick? Psalm 18, a psalm of David. You probably don't remember, but I'll remind you. Psalm 18 gives us two angles to the same story. David's in battle. He's praying to the Lord, needing help. And the first half describes, well, God's visible intervention, his cosmic upheaval. God coming miraculously and visibly and powerfully like a storm. The second half explains what that actually looked like in human terms. It didn't look like the first half. David says in the second half of Psalm 18 that it it looked like David not tripping. The Lord kept him on his feet. It looked like in battle strength and like a, a steady shield, endurance, and protection. That's how God intervened. He used ordinary means, but but here's how it's described. Look at verse 6. Here's the first half. The cosmic response of judgment in the Lord. David says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Verse 11, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he set out his arrows and scattered them. What, real arrows? No, he flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Now, what this is showing us is that even in the providential, even in the normal human means of God sustaining us, God is working in a powerful, glorious way. Behind the scenes, it's like a storm. It's like thunder and lightning and hail. And that's what it means in Psalm 97. Turn back there. In verse 3, 
that a fire goes before him and burns up all his adversaries. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. What's that mean, the mountains melt like wax? It's not volcano. It means there's no place to hide. If you're his enemy, there's no cave to go in. There's no mountain to go on the other side of so you can not be seen. There's no hiding from his presence when he comes. The mountains melt like wax. Dozens of psalms all say the same thing, that God intervenes for his people sometimes like a storm, and sometimes that's visible and loud like a a real hurricane, and sometimes in providential ways he works on our behalf. But that's not where the story ends. The Old Testament prophets talked about a coming day when there would be an earth-shattering event, a global judgment, a global redemption, a massive universal upheaval. You might know of these words from Handel's Messiah, which we hear at Christmas time. We hear it at Christmas time because these words were about the coming of God to earth in Jesus. They're quoted by John the Baptist, in fact. In Isaiah 40, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in a desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain of the hill will be made low. The uneven ground will become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The New Testament says Jesus is the glory of God in the flesh. The glory of God has come. That's why John the Baptist preached a message saying, Get ready. Make a straight path. He's going to smooth it out. He's going to knock them down. He's going to raise them up. The glory of the Lord is here. Now, when Jesus was born, nothing Nothing of an upheaval happened. But at the cross, you actually have literal earth shaking, don't you? In Mark 15, the sky went dark when Jesus was on the cross. In Matthew 27, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why? The glory of the Lord had been revealed. At the resurrection, there was a great earthquake, it says, Matthew 28, as an angel rolled back the stone of his tomb. What's going on? Just a a coincidence, an earthquake at the same time as the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? No. Well, God just sort of letting you know, letting us know, this was a really big event, let me show you, I'll do an earthquake at the same time, kind of like a magic show, so you can be impressed and he can be validated. Not with all these earthquake, earth-shaking things. It's symbolic of, of God doing something mighty, powerful, special. God coming in redemption. God coming in judgment. Like Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. 
Hebrews 2.14 tells us that he died so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Like God of the Old Testament, riding in on a storm with lightning and thunder and earthquakes beneath. Victorious over his enemies and rescuing his people, Jesus came. The sky went dark, the earth shook, rocks were split. It was a great earthquake when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, when he triumphed over them, when he defeated the power of death and the devil himself. Nothing less than that was happening at the death and resurrection of Jesus. But lastly, all this points to a final judgment and a recreation. Upheavals point to a final judgment. In a recreation that God is doing. Everyday upheavals. Tomorrow's tornadoes. The hurricane that's headed towards Florida. Everyday upheavals should remind us of what's still to come. In Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the end of times. And he said, there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. He's saying that this isn't the end. Because there are earthquakes, he's saying precisely the opposite. It's not the end yet, but it's gearing up. The baby's coming. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth being birthed. It's already groaning, right? Earthquakes are but birth pains. The end is not yet. But earthquakes are a reminder of what's to come. It's a reminder that there will be an end. And the beginning of it has already started. In Mark 13, the end is actually described more specifically that they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power, with glory. Luke 17 says that his coming will be like lightning, sudden, visible, undeniable, loud, powerful, earth-shaking. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that the day when the Lord returns... When he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he will be in flaming fire. In Revelation 1, John warns, Behold, he is coming. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Revelation 16 describes that final judgment like this. That there'll be flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake that every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. Mountains melt like wax, the presence of the Lord. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God. Oh, unbelief is so ridiculously stubborn, isn't it? I mean, getting hit with 100-pound hailstones and not bending the knee yet, not recognizing your rebellion and his lordship yet. John the Baptist preached a message saying, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Jesus who bore God's wrath on the cross for us. 
that we might be forgiven. Listen to him. Hebrews 12 says, oh, be careful that you don't refuse him who is speaking. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about Sinai. That at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more. I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's still to come. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Christians, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He shakes heaven and earth that Mount Zion would remain. Mount Zion will not be shaken. It cannot be shaken. Everything else can. So he's good to shake it. He's good to shake it to show us what remains. What do you see in the dark side of creation? Do you see no God at all, just chaos? Just unfortunate weather patterns. Just necessary in this world that's round and weather spins about it. Do you see a God who's wound the clock in this world, but now it just runs without his involvement? Do you see a God who wishes he could do something about it, but he, he just can't? Or do you see, even in the dark side of creation, a God who is good and is powerful? He's the true and only God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the savior. And he will be its judge. Do you see a God of righteousness who hates sin and the rumblings of that hatred of sin are everywhere? Do you see a God who's just and full of truth who will not be mocked? You see a God who will not be domesticated, who is not like you, who does not explain himself always. A God who did not leave us without a witness. He's left us with such a powerful and clear, undeniable witness, constant witness that he's there and that this world is broken and that he's in control of it. He shows us his power and his glory everywhere in rumblings and shakings. And yet he's shown his power and his glory and his victory supremely in the warrior king coming in the clouds, shaking heaven and earth, dying in our place, being raised the third day. Ironically, who would see it coming? God has shown his power and glory and victory supremely in the humility and the servantry and the gentleness of his son. Stand in awe of him, all the earth. And he will come again in redemption or in retribution. He will ride on the clouds of thick darkness again. He will come like lightning like a thief in the night. And he will come not just to tweak things. He will come not just to show off. He will come to make a whole new heaven and earth. He will make all things right. 
he will make all things new. He will reconcile all things unto himself, either in heaven or in hell. Flee from the wrath that's to come. Christian, if you have this forgiveness, then keep trusting him. Know that you can trust him. Know that he's still reigning. Thunder, lightning, hurricanes, and tornadoes are proof that he's still here. He's still involved. He still sees. He's still sovereign. Storms are reminders. Yes, that this world is not perfect. It's broken. Yes, that he's coming again and he'll fix it. But in the meantime, storms remind us of his power and remind us that he's bigger than the storms. We will not fear even if this earth be removed, even if global warming gets worse, even if we have no water. We will not fear. The worst has already been removed. The best is always yet to come. What can happen? Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? So we trust him. We know that he's sovereign over our provision, our income. He is sovereign over your life, over your spouse. He is sovereign over your kids. He gave you those kids. He's sovereign over how many you have. He's sovereign over your body and its shortcomings, its diseases, its aches, and its pains. He is sovereign over your safety. Your alarm company is not. He is sovereign over this world, including bad people and terrorists and weird governments and elections in our country. He's sovereign. And he's sovereign over your salvation. You didn't seek him. He sought you. And he will finish it. He's powerful enough to finish it. His power works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Resurrection power is at work in us, Paul says in Philippians 3, to save us, to keep us, and to bring us home. So we stand in awe of his wonders and we worship him. Or, if I can just wrap this up with the words of Psalm 97. Zion hears and is glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. All you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous. Joy is sown for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name.